Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at chapter 18. And now, here's Carrie. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we know that nothing in all of creation could ever separate us from the love of Christ. We take great joy in that truth. Our worth comes from our identity as your child, which came through believing in your Son, not from anything or anyone else. You loved us and you chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in your eyes. We take joy in you, our Father God, who loves us. Amen. I'd like to begin by telling you two fictional stories, one about hope and the other about discouragement, which is what Acts 18 is all about. Strong leaders never lose hope. The story is told of a great never-say-die general who was taken captive and thrown into a deep, wide pit along with a number of his soldiers. In that pit was a huge pile of horse manure. Follow me, the general cried to his men as he dove into the pile. There has to be a horse in here somewhere. The devil, according to legend, once advertised his tools for sale at public auction. When the prospective buyers assembled, there was one oddly shaped tool which was labeled not for sale. Asked to explain why this was, the devil answered, I can spare my other tools but I cannot spare this one. It is the most useful implement that I have. It is called discouragement. And with it, I can work my way into hearts otherwise inaccessible. When I get this tool into a person's heart, the way is open to plant anything there that I may desire. So there's one thing that's constant, is that we're all subject to discouragement. There's no shortage of discouragement to hinder the work of God. The Bible is full of people who at times became discouraged. Reading from the New Living Translation, Acts 18, verses 1 to 17. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince, convince the Jews and the Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and he said, Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. Then he left and went to the home of Titus Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul became believers, and were baptized. 
One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and he told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. But when Gallio became governor of Ikea, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have a reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd then gathered Sostines, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Galileo paid no attention. The account of Paul's time in Corinth is not only a record of how the Spirit ministered through him, but also a stirring description of how he ministered to him. The passage is an excellent basis for an in-depth study of the causes and the cures for discouragement. Paul's 50-mile walk from Athens to Corinth must have been filled with discouragement of so little response in the intellectual capital of the world. We gain insight into the Apostle's inner feelings when he arrived at Corinth from the second chapter of his first letter to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. to When I first came to you, Dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Obviously, Paul's reaction to the philosophers in Athens led him to both discouragement and a new determination. In the future, he would get to the cross and the resurrection more directly and quickly. He would not rely on proud words of wisdom as he had in Athens. There was further discouragement awaiting the travel-weary apostle when he arrived in Corinth. He had been driven out of Macedonia and barely tolerated in Athens. In Corinth, he met the same hostility he had experienced before from the Jews. We can sense his patience burning very short as he exclaims in verse 6, your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now I will go and preach to the Gentiles. What Paul found in Corinth and what he felt in himself is a helpful parallel to identify the things that make us discouraged today. The negative attitude of people. The sin and suffering around us. 
and the sheer exhaustion of working hard for the Lord are elements of a kind of Elijah complex that we all experience at times. But the same Lord who got Elijah back on his feet is also working in his diminished apostle. The Lord did three things to give new strength and courage to Paul while he was in Corinth. He gave him the gift of new friends, a vision to recall him to be a visionary, and a specific, specific, perfectly timed intervention. And he does no less for us today. First, knowing what Paul was to face in Corinth, the Lord gave him new friends who shared Christ and his vocation of tent making. Aquila and Priscilla were Hebrew Christians who, after being driven out of Rome by Claudius, had fled as far as Corinth. They extended hospitality to Paul and an opportunity for the release of work with his hands. When frustration sets in in their ministry, the Lord often gives a spiritual leader the opportunity to relax and to recuperate. And it was working with, the understand, with understanding friends that gave Paul the chance to rebuild his energies. <clears throat> when he began to preach again, Paul's ministry in Corinth brought both tremendous response and cruel rejection. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, was converted along with his household. That manifested the issue with the Jews, and the attack was on again. But so was the Spirit's power in Paul's preaching. A large number heard and believed the Apostle's straightforward presentation of the Gospel. When the conflict with the Jews reached a boiling point in Corinth, the Lord gave his second cure for discouragement. The appearance of the Lord in a vision tells us, <coughs> excuse me, tells us further about the Apostle's condition. What the Lord said indicates what the weary missionary was going through. He was afraid, tempted not to speak in the light of the conflict, in need of a fresh encounter with Christ, and he longed for the assurance that the church would survive in Corinth. And the Lord put his tender touch on the raw nerve of the apostle. And what he said to him, he says to us in those times of depletion and discouragement, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. <clears throat> Paul's fear was that continued success in preaching the gospel would bring further hostility. He had been beaten, imprisoned, chased out of cities, and persistently pursued by the Jews. And there's only one cure for that kind of fear. Love. Paul had a deep need for a revival of the love relationship of acceptance and assurance that the Lord had given him each step of the way. Only love can exorcise fear. Fear is always the absence of knowing that we are loved. <clears throat> the apostle needed to know that he was loved for who he was and not for what he was doing. A renewal of that basic grace would replace his caution with courage. Daring to preach regardless of the danger would open Paul again to the fresh 
flow of power. Paul was blessed as he blessed as he blessed others by boldly sharing the gospel. But he could only do that by keeping his eyes on Jesus. Jesus' promise to the disciples in Matthew 28, verse 20, is reaffirmed for Paul. I am with you always. With that assurance, nothing could harm Paul. Notice that the Lord didn't promise freedom from further attack. What he did promise was that no one could hurt him. So what did the Lord mean? Paul had further physical harm done to him throughout the rest of his ministry, but it could not hurt him. He was safe for eternity. And Jesus promises this for all believers. Eternal salvation. It cannot be taken away or lost. John 3, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life. If you do not believe in him, you have already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. If you believe in Jesus, all your sins are forgiven because of the cross and the resurrection. But there is one and only one sin that will not be forgiven, and that is the sin of not believing in Jesus. The Lord assured Paul that he would not have to face more than he could bear. And further, Paul was not alone. The Lord had surrounded him with a strong force of faithful people. There were Silas, Timothy, and Luke. To meet the special time of need, these three were joined by Aquila and Priscilla. Then there was Justice, who had taken a stand for Christ at the cost of losing his position of prestige. And added to all of these were the new converts to Christ, who would not let him down by forsaking God's apostle. The Lord seldom solves the problem of discouragement without using his people to remind us that we are loved by him through them. Paul's time of vulnerability reminded him that the qualification for ministry is the willingness to be ministered to in the fellowship. When Paul was brought before Galileo and, and the charge was made, Galileo did not want to hear the Apollo's defense. In fact, Luke implies that Galileo interrupted him just as he was about to speak. If the Jews had brought a real case of wrongdoing or wicked crime, that would have been fine. But one more dispute over, more, over words was more than Galileo wanted to hear. And here was the Lord's perfectly timed intervention through a hardened Roman officer who probably, probably wished that he was back in Rome. Let's read verses 18 to 23. <clears throat> Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went nearby to Sancreae. 
There he shaved his head, according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the elders behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. Then he set sail from Ephesus, and the next stop was at the port of Caesarea. From there he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem, and then went back to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. The decision of Galileo made it possible for Paul to remain in Corinth for some time after that, until his work was finished. The time was probably in addition to the 18 months mentioned in verse 11. The time in Corinth was one of the most strategic strategic in the apostles' ministry. He preached, he taught, and wrote the Thessalonian epistles. And he was reconfirmed in his call and relationship with the Lord. The time of discouragement was over. Luke's account of the conclusion of the second missionary journey carries an insight into Paul's mind and heart when he left Corinth. We are told that he took Priscilla and Aquila with him to the port of Sancrie to get a ship to Caesarea and then to go on to Jerusalem for the feast. Now Luke tells us a very interesting thing. Paul had his hair cut before boarding the ship. That would have been part of the Nazarite vow in preparation for Jerusalem. The vow had originally been a lifetime of abstinence from wine and the shaving of the head. In Paul's day, it was limited to 30 days. The hair was cut and offered as part of a sacrifice at Jerusalem. If a Jew began the 30-day period away from Jerusalem, the hair was cut and saved until he reached Jerusalem, at which time his head would be shaved. The Nazarite vow is described in Numbers chapter 6, and the shaving of the head in connection with a vow is following that custom of the Nazarite vow. Time does not permit us to read chapter 6 of Numbers. May I suggest that you read it on your own if you have time. There are 613 laws in the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament. And thanks to Jesus, we're not under any of them. If we have Jesus as our Savior, we are born anew and the New Testament to live by. The purpose of the Nazarite vow was to separate yourself to God. This is where I have always had a problem with Paul doing this. Isn't this adding to the once and for all sacrifice of Christ? Isn't this the Paul who preached, you are saved by grace? For a long time, I believe that Paul backslid back to the Jewish law, his roots. Scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, No one is righteous, not even one. And Paul was human. Then I read another explanation as to why Paul may have done this. The Bible doesn't record why he chose to follow the Jewish practice for this particular vow, though we can make a reasonable guess. 
Because Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 22, Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I am not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. Even though Paul strongly taught that Christians are not under the Old Testament covenant, Paul wasn't against the customs of keeping that Old Covenant so long as they did not interfere with his keeping the law of Christ. In Acts 18.21, he stated he was heading to Jerusalem and wanted to be there in time for a particular feast. Paul was well known in the Jewish cities as one who had abandoned his faith and had become a Christian. And by following the custom of this vow, Paul was showing everyone that he hadn't changed that much. And it would provide an opportunity for him to talk to his brethren about Christ. It was not that Paul thought that shaving the head was required for a vow. He saw it as something that made no difference and so would do no harm to follow the custom and it would open doors of opportunity that he would not have otherwise. Even though he kept one part of the Nazareth vow, he would not have followed this type of vow completely. Along with the shaving of the head, the vow required abstaining from grape products. As a Christian, Paul would not have done this if the vow lasted longer than a week, because he probably would have partaken in the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, and that supper includes the fruit of the vine. Paul had been through a difficult time, and the Lord had helped him out of his valley. Perhaps in performing this Nazarite vow, he expressed his gratitude and his recommitment to his central purpose and plan. And at the same time, he reaffirmed, rather than refuted, his Hebrew heritage. That would mean that the haircutting at Sancrie was the completion of the 30 days, and Paul longed to be back in Jerusalem. He wanted to go home. When the ship stopped at Ephesus, Paul could not stay away from the synagogue. And one further opportunity to communicate Christ. The response was positive, and the people wanted him to stay, but his heart was in Jerusalem. He promised to return, and he sailed out for Caesarea. After that, he returned to Antioch of Syria. His time in Jerusalem and among his beloved friends in Antioch was healing and renewing. Paul's plan to return immediately to Ephesus seems to have been interrupted by something demanding his attention. 
Perhaps the Galatian letter was written from Antioch as the Jews were inflicting poison theology on the churches. Through all of Paul's perilous days, we again discover that the Lord is faithful. He will not leave or forsake us. All that we long to have happen in our churches, in new life, mission, evangelism, and courageous stewardship is dependent upon us enabling people to discover how to live the adventure of the abundant life. The danger of a religion of a self-effort is that it makes a person defensive against finding the authentic life in Christ, which is liberated by forgiveness and motivated by his spirit and enabled by his power. Reading verses 24 to 28. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an elegant speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived at Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only only about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be a great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. The true meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection, and spirit baptism of of Jesus, Jesus' followers at Pentecost, had not reached Alexandria, and therefore was not part of Apollo's experience or teaching. He knew the water baptism of repentance, but not the spirit baptism of regeneration. He was like people today who believe in Christ, try to live his message, and faithfully celebrate his death and resurrection without an intimate union with him. It is possible to be a follower of Jesus without his enabling power. It is also equally possible to enjoy Easter without the liberation that comes from death to self and personal resurrection to a new life. The way to get to people like this about what they are missing is not to tell them about the inadequacy of their religion, but to put the emphasis on the triumphant adequacy of the indwelling Lord as a source of power to live the Christian life with more than just human effort. And this is most likely what Aquila and Priscilla communicated to Apollos. After swaying the crowd, Apollos was willing to listen to two tent makers. We learn from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that Apollos became a leader of the church there. Perhaps it's significant that Luke tells us that Apollos helped those in Corinth, verse 27, who by God's grace had believed. Apollos had no more need to build up Apollos any longer. Instead, he built up the church. He encouraged Paul's converts watering the seed the apostle had planted 
and he won new people to the Lord, and the joy of the Spirit-filled life. Paul, therefore, could write in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. Renewed experiences of the Lord's undeserved favor puts us in touch with people's greatest needs. We become sensitive, caring, and forgiving of human inadequacies. The spirit of religious judgmentalism is replaced by acceptance and love. It wasn't the fear of hell that brought me to Christ. I didn't believe in hell or in the God of the Bible. But it was reading the Gospels that I realized that God was love and he loved the world. He loved me. And he showed his love for me by sending Jesus. We don't have to establish how bad people are, but rather how great is the Lord's transforming love. Paul would later write in his letter to the Corinthians, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. As Christians, let's let our prayers always be. May the Lord place in our hearts his love for all people. Amen. Indeed, Jesus is Savior and Lord. Fathers, we just, as we depart, we pray that you would help us just to be mindful of that. To be willing, as Paul was, to go forth and to share the good news with others. To grow in your love and to show your love. And we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.